Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Good morning to all of you. A few weeks ago, I started a new sermon series called Decisions That Make a Difference. Life confronts us with an array of decisions. In fact, one of the greatest tests of our faith is in the area of decision-making. Every major decision we make in life will make a difference, either good or bad. You see this noticeably in the Bible when stories of two people are brought together side by side. One serves as a positive example and the other serves as a negative example. And both characters are intentionally brought together so we can compare and contrast their lives. And you can distinctly see the consequences of each of their choices. So every time I preach over the next few months, I'll continue on this theme of decision-making and bring you comparisons between Bible characters and the difference their decisions made. The last time I spoke, we looked at the life of Abraham and Lot And they represent two paradigms in decision-making. Lot symbolized the way and thinking of the world, while Abraham represented the walk of faith. Today, we're going to look at two brothers who are complete contrasts. And by comparing their lives, we're going to learn a very important lesson in decision-making. Our decisions can positively or negatively impact Not just our life, but the future generations. I want to talk to you today about the spiritual blessing that we can confer on our children, our family, those who are around us, and the future generations as we honor the Lord in our day-to-day decisions. Let's look at the story of Jacob and Esau and how their decisions made a difference, not just in their life, but it changed the eternal trajectory of the generations to follow them. Would you please stand as we read from Genesis chapter 25, verses 19 to 34. This is the account of the family line of Abraham's son, Isaac. Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel the Aramean from Paddan Aram, and sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer, and his wife Rebekah became pregnant. The babies jostled each other within her, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. The Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment, so they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel, so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. 
Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he was also called Edom. Jacob replied, first sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentils too. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. Father God, we come before you recognizing the power and the authority of your word. And at the same time, we also recognize our own weaknesses, how vulnerable each one of us are to, make, to making wrong decisions and choices in our life. Father, would you speak to us today on the consequences of our decisions, that our eyes will be open to the truth of your word. Minister to us, Lord, in the power of your spirit and leave a deep desire in our hearts to live a life of uh, lasting influence, that our legacy will continue on to the generations to come. So speak to us and, and minister to us in a way that you alone can. We commit this time to you and we pray this in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Jacob and Esau were twin brothers who had very little in common. Rebekah was pregnant for the very first time. She had heard from other women about babies kicking inside the womb, but in her case, she felt like a hockey fist fight was taking place in her tummy. So that prompted her to inquire of the Lord. An important prophecy was given to Rebekah. Look at verse 23. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Rebekah was carrying two nations in her womb. Both will go on to become significant nations, but their relationship will be largely hostile. And you can see that even in their mother's womb as they were butting heads with each other. The older one came out, he was red, and his body was covered with hair. He didn't look like a baby. I bet he looked more like a character from Star Wars. <laughs> and within moments, the second baby appeared in a dramatic fashion. He could have won the Oscar for the best child actor. His hand was clutching his brother's heel, almost saying, I should have come out first. Because the first baby was hairy, they named him Esau, for Esau in Hebrew means hairy. Because the second baby was born grabbing Esau's heel, he was given the name Jacob, which literally means heel grabber. If you make a movie on the lives of these two brothers, a good title will be When Harry Met Grabby. The boys were twins, but they neither looked alike, nor did they resemble in personality. Esau, as we can see, was a skillful hunter, a man's man who loved the outdoors. He was an adventure freak. 
So he was the ultimate guy with tattooed biceps and riding a Harley. Jacob, on the other hand, was the opposite. He loved to stay indoors. He was quiet and reserved, civilized and refined, with clean fingernails and trimmed beard. So Jacob stayed home, taking care of the family business. Our passage tells us that there was a problem in the home in which they were raised. Look at verse 28. Isaac loved Esau because he enjoyed eating the wild game Esau brought home, but Rebekah loved Jacob. This was clearly a dysfunctional family. Isaac favored Esau because of his love for wild game, while Rebekah loved Jacob more. Psychologists say sibling rivalry is an inevitable outcome of parental favoritism. And that's what you see in this family. As parents played favorites, it contributed to jealousy, rivalry, hatred, competition. And it just widened the divide that just already existed between the two brothers. Esau and Jacob were now grown-up men. And there comes a moment in their life when they would be called to make a decision that would change their destiny and the destiny of the generations to follow. Look at verses 29 and 30. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. You know, this was the moment Jacob was waiting for all along. For he was well aware of his brother's impulsive tendencies. He knew the approximate time time Esau would return from his hunting expedition hungry. So clearly, this was a premeditated idea, well thought through, and Jacob carried it out with precision. He chose a strategic space to cook a part of delicious stew. So as Esau returned from the wilderness after a long day of hunting with no success, he was famished, and the delicious smell of freshly made stew was just wafting in the air. You know, it's like when you go for a walk or jog in your neighborhood, you know when someone is barbecuing. Ah, that sweet smell that makes your mouth water. Esau had not eaten all day. His stomach was growling. His blood sugar went low. And as he looked at this stew, this delicious hot food, it was too good to resist. This is what he says when he looks at the red lentil stew. Literally, he says, quick, give me some of that red stuff. Look at verse 31 to see Jacob's response. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. The word play in the original language is fascinating all through this passage. And what we see is the hunter is now going to be hunted as Jacob springs a trap on his gullible brother. What is the birthright? That's the key to understanding our text. A birthright guaranteed double portion of the family inheritance. So it had financial benefit to it. The firstborn son would receive twice as much as the rest of the brothers. 
In addition, one with the birthright got to be the leader of the family clan. So after the parents die, the son with the birthright will be the head of the extended family. Brothers, sisters, nephews, nieces, grandchildren. The birthright gave the position of leadership. In the case of Jacob and Esau, the birthright was not just a matter of honor and prestige. At the heart of the birthright was God's covenant promise that he gave to Abraham. The spiritual blessings and the favor of God will be transferred from one generation after another until the chosen lineage will be the vehicle that God would use to reveal himself to the whole world. So this was God's plan. So all this to say the birthright was a pretty big deal. Who in their right mind would trade their birthright for a bowl of red lentil stew? Who would do that? I can understand at least if there was some meat in that stew. <laughs> to give your birthright for a lentil stew, that is unacceptable. <laughs> now, if Esau had been thinking clearly, this was a no-brainer. Sell my birthright for a part of stew? You got to be kidding me. This is ridiculous. That's not how Esau responded. Look at Esau's response. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? Esau, hello. Did you really say that? When Esau's appetites were awakened, he lost sight of what was valuable. He was willing to lay down his most prized possession on the line just to satisfy his hunger. And guess what? Esau wasn't dying. That is just plain exaggeration. Esau walked over here. He's not in his deathbed. And as soon as he chows down that pot of stew, he's going to walk away fine. So Esau is acting like a spoiled teenager who says, if I don't get that latest iPhone, I would die. I would give my life for those cute pair of shoes. He's so obsessed with food that all he felt at that moment was the intensity of the hunger. He wanted to gratify his desire and in that quest allowed everything else to blur and become insignificant. A plate of stew seemed more important than a place in the purpose of God. And he goes on to trade a lasting benefit of his birthright for an immediate, momentary, fleeting pleasure. Now, you may be sitting there wondering, how does this apply to us? In a world that offers instant gratification, you and I are tempted like Esau daily to give away our prized possessions and exchange them for worthless substitutes. When our eyes are fixed on something that we want so badly, it's scary to see how everything else blurs and becomes insignificant. 
We are blinded to the consequences of our actions because all we can see at that moment is the immediate pleasure and the satisfaction it would bring. Let me give you an example. Ashley Madison is a Canada-based online dating service marketed to people who are married. Its shocking slogan, life is short, have an affair. But the picture of a lady with her finger on her lips, hush, hush. Now, I had to go to this website in order to find out what it's all about, so I made sure I told my wife. <laughs> if you see on our browser history that I visited Ashley Madison, it is for the sole purpose of sermon illustration only. I gave the disclaimer. <laughs> well, listen to these words. The website blatantly asserts on its homepage, have an affair today on Ashley Madison. Thousands of cheating wives and cheating husbands sign up every day looking for an affair. Married dating has never been easier. With our affair guarantee package, we guarantee you will find the perfect affair partner. Sign up for free today. All along the sales pitches, there's something wrong with your life. That's why you are discontent. And we are going to offer you this exotic pleasure that is somehow going to spice up your life. The website guaranteed secrecy to all its customers, a promise they couldn't keep. And as you know, last year, a group of hackers stole the user data of Ashley Madison and leaked all of the information, including personal user details resulted in a huge controversy as names started to emerge and heads started to roll. People who used the site ranged from government officials to politicians to business people to pastors. And why would they do that? Were they not aware of the consequences of their actions? A professor of neuroscience at University College London gave a poignant insight when he said, when you look at someone you're passionate about, some areas of the brain become active, but a large part of it is deactivated, the part that plays a role in judgment. So that explains why 40 million people were willing to break their marriage vows, betray their spouse, lay their family on the line, and jeopardize the future of their children for a moment of rushing pleasure. And I tell you, every single one of them undoubtedly traded their prized possession for a ball of stew. Don't tell me it's someone's private matter. It's no longer private when your decisions adversely affect the lives of your children and the generations to follow. Find these uh, sobering words in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 16 and 17. See that no one is sexually immoral or is godless like Esau who for a single meal sold his inheritance rights as the oldest son. Afterward, as you know, when he wanted to inherit this blessing, he was rejected. Even though he sought the blessing with tears, he could not change what he had done. K. 
Can you see what Esau lost? He lost a place in the chosen lineage of God. This great God of the universe would have introduced himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. It would have been recorded in the Gospel of Matthew in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Esau. Instead, this is what you read in the pages of history. Esau's descendants, the nation of Edom, turned out to be enemies of God's people. The religion of the Edomites was similar to that of other pagan societies. They worshipped fertility gods. And do you know who was a prominent person to come from Esau's lineage? History shows us that Herod the Great, who ordered the massacre of babies in Bethlehem in order to kill the Christ child, could be traced to the lineage of Esau. All of this as a consequence of giving your most prized possession for a bowl of stew. When you make decisions in life, don't just look for short-term benefits. Look to the future to be able to see the implications and the consequences of your decisions and the impact it will have on the lives of your children and the generations to follow. For that is the gauge you use to make every major decision in life. And some of you right now, you are contemplating a bargain that you know is foolish. You want something that is dangling before you so badly that you have allowed it to blur everything else, even the consequences. And I want you to pause for a moment, even right now, and think about what really hangs in the balance. Your choices have the power to rob you of the destiny the Lord has in mind for your life. And your choices even have the potential to rob the destiny the Lord has for your children and the generations to follow. In light of all of this, it's not worth the price. You know, we've looked at Esau... And you've seen the consequences of Esau's decisions. What about Jacob? Jacob is one of the most fascinating and intriguing characters in the Bible. A businessman was uh, late for an important meeting and was hunting for a parking space. As he frantically circled around the block, he got desperate and finally decided to pray. So looking up toward heaven, he said, Lord, take pity on me. If you find me a parking space, I'll go to church every Sunday for the rest of my life. And I'll give up on drinking as well. And at that moment, miraculously, a parking space appeared. The guy looked up again and said, never mind, I found one. 
You know, that's the kind of guy Jacob was. So far, as you read the book of Genesis, you will see that there was nothing admirable about Jacob, nothing commendable about his actions. He was a self-sufficient, self-made man who refused to take the second spot. He was filled with ambitions of his own to the point God couldn't bless him. For 20 years, Jacob strived in his own strength, and he made a mess of his life. And finally, he had reached the end of the rope. And then comes the defining moment when Jacob learned to stop striving and give control of his life over to God. That decision would be the marker the turning point in his life that would forever change Jacob's destiny. We come to Genesis chapter 32, one of the most enigmatic passages in the Bible. For there you would see a wrestling match taking place. And it's between God and Jacob as they wrestle all night long. Jacob encountered God like never before that night. His hip gets busted in the process. He would limp for the rest of his life. But through this all-night encounter, God overpowered years of his resistance and self-striving. Jacob would be a different man. Let me tell you, you can fight with God, but you will never win. And in that moment, God asked Jacob a life-changing question. Look at Genesis chapter 32, verses 27 and 28. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. The man struggling with Jacob is God himself. As you would read Genesis 32, you will get that. And God was not looking for information when he asked that question, what is your name? God was looking for a confession. He was asking, what kind of man are you? Do you remember the last time when his blind father Isaac had asked Jacob the very same question, what is your name? What was Jacob's response? He lied and he said, I am Esau. At this time, Jacob is alone with God. And God repeats the question, what is your name? This time, Jacob comes clear. My name is Jacob. It's my hand that reached out to grab my brother's heel to pull him down. I deceptively stole the blessings from my blind father. I have stumbled through life in my own strength, seeking everything my way. In admitting all of this, he was making a confession before God. I am the trickster. I am the deceiver. I am the conniver. I am the imposter. I am the con artist. I am Jacob. 
That's exactly what God wanted to hear from him. At that very moment, God gave him a new name. You will no longer be called Jacob. Your new name will be Israel. What does the word Israel mean? There are a few interpretations, but Bible scholar Tremper Longman points out Israel means God fights. God was no longer going to fight against Jacob. From that time on, he was going to fight for Jacob. And as Jacob surrendered to God in repentance, as he came in alignment with God's plan and purposes for his life, as he acknowledged God as the source of all blessings, a profound change happened in Jacob. But something even greater was going to happen through him. For he's no longer Jacob. His new name is Israel. For through him will come a nation, God's own chosen people, who will reveal God to the world who will be a light in the darkness. And through this nation, every single nation in the world will be blessed. And all of this will happen through a descendant who will come through Israel, the Messiah who will go on to reconcile every single people group back to God through the shedding of His own blood. The grand purposes and the plan of God will be accomplished. Do you see the power of one decision? When a person raised in a dysfunctional family, whose very name stood for deceit, who had lived for the most part as a con artist, when such a person wholeheartedly surrendered to God, something profound took place in that person and through that person, that generations were reaping the blessings of that one decision. That's the good news. If God can do it through Jacob, He can do it through any one of us here. It does not matter how many bad decisions we have made. When we sincerely surrender to God and choose to honor Him for the rest of our life, God is delighted not just to bless you, but to bless the generations that come after you. And you will leave behind for your children the inheritance that really, really matters. A great example of this is seen in the life of Jonathan Edwards, the Puritan preacher who was part of the Great Awakenings, one of the greatest revival movements that North America has seen that happened in 1700s. He was a deeply spiritual man with a strong conviction and faith. Jonathan Edwards and his wife Sarah left a rich, godly legacy for their 11 children. At the turn of the 20th century, someone decided to study the family tree of Edwards and trace out his descendants almost 150 years after his death. And this is what they found through Edwards' family tree. Through this family came one U.S. vice president, three U.S. senators, 
three governors, three mayors, 13 college presidents, 30 judges, 65 professors, 80 public office holders, 100 lawyers, and 100 missionaries. The blessing and favor of God flowed through the godly legacy of Edwards and Sarah, and generations after them were reaping those blessings. You know, in contrast, the same researcher studied the family tree of a man named Max Jukes, a contemporary of Edwards who lived a life like Esau, a godless life. He lived an indulgent life. He married a woman who was like-minded. And they traced Max Duke's family tree. And what they found was astonishing. Extremely high number of alcoholics, criminals, murderers, prostitutes, people who were a liability to the government came out of that family tree. 42 different men in the New York prison system were traced back to Max Duke's family tree. The difference between a godly and ungodly legacy is like day and night. And I want you to hear me here. This doesn't mean that people are simply a product of their parenting and that they are, their life is determined by their ancestry alone. No. And it doesn't mean that all of Edward's children were godly and every one of Duke's children became derelicts. That's not my point. You know, I don't want us to be worried about the math here, but what I'm drawing us to is a principle in the Bible that is repeated so often. Look at Exodus chapter 20, verses 5 and 6. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now here is how you understand this verse. It's not that God will punish innocent children for the sins of their parents, what they had done. But the parents, primarily through their example and their choices, pass on their lifestyle, their values, and their sin patterns to the children who inherit them and continue in that same lifestyle, which in turn brings God's punishment. Human experience confirms that children pay for the bad choices of the parents. Here's a simple example. Researchers confirm children whose parents smoked are twice as likely to begin smoking between ages 13 and 21 as offspring of non-smokers. When parents leave God out of their life and live recklessly, the children pay the price. For that is the grievous nature of sin. Sin's destructive consequences hurt the person committing the sin as well as those who are around them. But at the same time, Every generation is faced with a choice to repeat that cycle of sin or to find a better way. 
That cycle of sin persists itself. It continues repeatedly. It transcends across generations. But repentance and turning to God breaks that cycle. When one person makes that decision to turn their life over to God, when one person commits their life to Jesus Christ, when they are washed in the blood of the Lamb, when they are filled with the Holy Spirit, it does not matter what your ancestry was like before. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ breaks every generational curse. And what you receive in turn is the favor and the mercy and the blessings of God for thousands of generations. In other words, God's grace lasts a thousand times more than His anger. And when we humble ourselves before Him, confess our sins, and seek Him wholeheartedly, God's face shines upon us. And that favor gets passed on to the generations. That is the power of a godly legacy. There are some of you here, you have lived a godly life, but your children don't share the same convictions, and you are heartbroken by that. I want to encourage you today. Your godly legacy will never go waste. You may not see the results now, but God will use the imprint of your life and your God-honoring decisions. And the seed of His favor will be passed on to the upcoming generations down the line. So be encouraged. Your godly legacy will never go waste. When I committed my life to Jesus Christ, I became the first in my entire family lineage to become a Christian. You know, some time ago, I was reflecting on this, pondering over this thought, and it was sobering. I thought about this, my entire ancestry, hundreds and hundreds of people who lived before me, walked without the truth. They lived in perpetual darkness, surrounded by a cloud of oppression and caught in the quicksand of sin. They were alienated from God. But God, in His grace, in His mercy, opened my eyes to the truth of who He is. And He gave me a new identity. He invited me to become part of His royal family. You know, as the weight of that truth hit me that day, my heart was filled with a deep and profound sense of gratitude that cannot be expressed in words. And I said to God that day in my prayer, Lord, enough of the generations that lived in darkness, deception, sin, and bondage to the enemy. 
Let a new generation arise with your favor and shine as a beacon of light set apart for God to reveal God's plan and His purposes to the world. Let the generations that come after me continue to testify to your faithfulness, your goodness, your mercy and grace and the life-changing message of Jesus Christ until He returns. And I challenge you, make that your prayer. Make that your priority. For that's what really, really matters. It's not what you leave for your children, but it's what you leave in them that counts. I'm going to ask us to stand as we come to an end. I want you to close your eyes right now. Maintain a moment of silence in the presence of the Lord. You know, God is very much alive in this place. His Holy Spirit is moving. He's talking to a number of you. He's knocking on the door of your heart. Uh, we've received a challenge. We've seen two different lives. The question I have for you is, who do you identify with? Jacob? Or Esau. Esau, for a momentary pleasure, gave away his most prized possession. Jacob strived in his own strength for much too long. But there came that point when he fully committed his life to God and received a new name. Church, God can do that today. So I want you to just reach out to him right now. The quietness of this moment, would you say, God, that's what I want for my life. A new name, a new legacy that will be passed on to the generations that are to follow. Just maintain a moment of silence and pray to God and I'll close our time in prayer. some of you here, you're making that decision for the very first time to fully give your life to Jesus. If that is you, I want to encourage you to come up and talk to me and other prayer partners here in the front after the service. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and praise you for your mercy and grace. The grace that you have lavished on us, that we can be called children of God. For you have taken us from darkness and brought us into your marvelous light. You've given us a new identity, a new name. You've given us every spiritual blessing in Jesus. Thank you for your favor. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for these convictions that have changed our life. And it is our prayer today, Lord, that the generations that come after us will continue in that blessing. They will continue to walk in that favor of God. 
that they will not be carried away by the darkness that surrounds them in this world, but they will be a beacon of light. Let generations arise, Lord Jesus, of people who are fully dedicated to you, following you wholeheartedly. That your kingdom will advance. That we will have representatives for your kingdom until the Lord Jesus returns in each of our generations. Hear our prayers. We pray for those who have made the commitment today. That you empower them by your spirit. That you will stir in their heart a renewed passion for you. A passion that will leave a deep imprint and a mark in the lives of others around them. Even as we leave this place, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of our Heavenly Father, and the sweet, unfailing fellowship of the Holy Spirit may rest and abide with each and every one of us, both now and forevermore. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.